Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the theory that COVID-19 could have originated in a lab was considered a debunked conspiracy theory, but some experts are now revisiting that idea amid calls for a new, more thorough investigation. Did the media fall victim to a misinformation campaign? And according to a study done out of the University of Ottawa, one of the few benefits of the pandemic was the decrease of bullying in schools. But does that benefit outweigh the mental health impacts left on children? And some places here in Canada and around the world are making the case for a four-day work week. Could it work here? Would you like to see it? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A lot of controversy about COVID-19 and pandemics and coronaviruses over the last 18 or 19 months. A lot of stories and, uh, well, some suggest conspiracy theories about where this virus came from. Well, United States President Joe Biden has now ordered U.S. intelligence officials to redouble their efforts to investigate the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. Elizabeth Schultz says two primary areas of of concern and, I guess, controversy are really being debated now. Here's, Here's her report. There are two main theories about its origin. Either the virus was transmitted through contact with an infected animal or it escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China. The Wall Street Journal recently reported three workers at the lab became sick and were hospitalized with flu-like symptoms in November 2019, one month before China reported its first infection. That seems to be quite a turnaround from the theories that were going around at the beginning of this, almost 16, 17 months ago. So where is the truth in this and where is the investigation? To answer some of those questions, we're pleased to welcome to the program Paul D. Thacker. Paul is a freelance journalist for the British Medical Journal and a former investigator for the U.S. Senate and Safra Ethics Center at Harvard. Uh, Paul, pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this. Thanks so much for having me on, Bill. I'm confused, as I guess a lot of other people are, about where we're going on this. Because any time there was a talk of, of you know, something that was hooked up in, in this place in Wuhan, uh, it's usually just debunked as a conspiracy theory, that this was animal contact, and that's what all the experts told us. And a lot of us seem comfortable with that. And as, as pointing out here in the article in the, in the British Medical Journal, they in hindsight, seemed to be a pretty elaborate campaign to make sure that that's what we were thinking, and we didn't even entertain any other ideas. Well, what there was was a very concerted conspiracy to label other people as conspiracy theorists. And this started back in February of 2020, in which there was a statement that was published in The Lancet that labeled that said that we are against conspiracy theories that this could have that this you know did not come from a natural uh, spillover from you know, just naturally having occurred. Um, come to find out. November of this last year, emails uh, became public that had been found through freedom of information requests. That letter to the Lancet had been orchestrated by a guy named Peter Daszak, who runs a group called Eco Health Alliance, who has direct financial ties to the lab in Wuhan. And the emails showed that he orchestrated that letter in the Lancet. Many of the people who signed that letter in the Lancet did not disclose that they have financial ties, like being on the board, vice president, to Equal Health Alliance. So it was all very well orchestrated by Peter Daszak in The Lancet. And uh, the, uh, the contrary theory that they were giving, of course, about animal contact and infected bats, et cetera, was a plausible theory, wasn't it, Paul? Because we'd heard that before from with other viruses and, and, and things of this nature. So we thought, yeah, that makes sense to us. So it was pretty easy to, to, to simply fall in line with what they were suggesting was going on. Well, yeah, except, um, you know, there's been concern about possible lab leaks going back into around 2012. There was a group around 2014 called the Cambridge Working Group 
which actually led to a stop to some of this research going on in these labs over concerns that there actually would be a lab leak. So there have been experts starting back about almost 10 years ago, very concerned about lab leaks. And then you see that suddenly, you know, this pandemic breaks out shockingly in the city that has two labs that are there to stop a pandemic from happening. And they also happen to be studying these viruses. So people were like, huh, that seems a little awkward. That seems like a, a bit of a high coincidence there. Which, which added fuel to the fire. There's another factor in here that, uh, that I, I wanted you to address. Uh, there's, there were people that were just suggesting that this was or had, you know, originated in a lab. We get that. But one of them was Donald Trump. And uh, I'll try to be as diplomatic as I can. Uh, an awful lot of people had very little faith in, in anything that Donald Trump had to say, authenticity or anything else, simply because of the way that he had come out attacking the Chinese and attacking this virus from the beginning. How hurtful was this theory that this is, was lab originated, uh, the fact that it was Trump that was actually advocating that and spouting that theory? Well, most people will tell you that, you know, again, I'm an American and I live in Spain. And, uh, you know, there's it's pretty well understood that, you know, people discuss this issue that's happened in America called Trump derangement syndrome. Yeah. In which if Trump says something, then therefore, you know, it must be automatically be wrong. The other term for this is orange man bad. Um, you know, and the reality is, is that, you know, I, I don't know if he said this because he, he knew it was true or not, like if he had access to intelligence. But regardless, at that point, as soon as Trump said it, it became the mission of many reporters to stop reporting and to simply oppose Donald Trump. And that has continued on into this year, into an issue that I call Trump derangement syndrome uh, long haulers, where we see now reporters still trying to knock down the idea that it could have been possibly coming from a lab. And there's just a Harvard political poll out that I just was reading as I was waiting to come on air that says the majority of Americans now believe they think it came from a lab. The reality is we don't have any evidence for either direction, whether, you know, because the Chinese are not allowing us to go in and investigate. They've been covering up from the very beginning. They've been um, uh, disappearing people who have reported on uh, this virus. Uh, it just came out. The Washington Post reported that an entire database of local newspaper reporting is now disappeared. That, that was up around 2019. So we don't know what's going on. And so there's really no need for anyone to be really making any kind of judgments, any direction. And what we've had instead is the science media, because they are closely aligned with their sources, arguing that it's impossible that it could have been a, um, a, a lab leak. Just right now, one of the reporters for CNN just tweeted yesterday that it's a conspiracy theory that it could have come from a lab. She's a reporter at CNN. But the element here, and it's the old cliche, I guess, with investigative reporting, follow the money. Uh, a lot of the people that are saying that this is all a conspiracy theory, as, as you mentioned in the piece here, uh, are dependent upon government grants and, and, and other uh, sources of revenue for their work. Uh, you don't want to be branded as a, as a whack job in a situation like that because, I mean, you could lose your funding, you could lose your status. So there's there's that element which plays into this, which I would think would probably motivate an awful lot of these people to simply fall in line. There's some of that going on, but also you have to understand that the American government, if this did happen because of a lab leak in one of those labs in Wuhan, in which there's two of them there, there's, there's the Wuhan Institute for Virology, and then there's a, um, also a laboratory for the Chinese CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in, in, in Wuhan as well. So there's two labs there that do this type of research on these viruses. And, you know, 
there's there's an entire infrastructure right who's pe- who, with people whose careers are based on studying these viruses and if we found out that the people studying these viruses to try to prevent a pan- pandemic actually caused a pandemic that's going to totally rewrite the type of funding that we're going to do for research you're going to see careers are going to be tanked people who are held up as, as heroes are now going to be looked upon as villains so there's a huge financial interest for a whole lot of scientists to denigrate and to deny that this could have possibly happened because of science. And to give give you just an example, this newest study that just came out, which is repeating the same thing, it must have come from natural spillover. One of the researchers on that paper, it's not disclosed, it's a preprint. His name is Edward Holmes. He lists himself as a professor at a university in Sydney, Australia. He doesn't tell you that he is also a visiting professor at the CDC in Beijing, China. So these financial ties to China, these financial ties to Chinese researchers to these labs are being hidden and we're muddling up the idea of what we should really be focusing on, which is follow the money and instead we're creating a smoke screen of conspiracy theory. What is it that motivated, well, first of all, the Biden administration, but subsequently, well, some of the what we call more reputable sources, I guess, in, in media, the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, New York Magazine, are now not necessarily saying that uh, this is the way it happened, but they're saying it's it's worthy of investigation. That They weren't saying that eight, nine months ago. Well, there's a couple things that happened. In the, the final month of the Trump administration, the State Department put out a fact sheet talking about some of the facts, pointing to the fact that this could have actually come from Wuhan. Also, there is a guy, a former um, uh, staffer for Biden, going back many, many years, named Jamie Metzl, who's now at the Atlantic Council, who's been saying since March of last year that he thinks this happened through a lab leak. And he's been or- he's been organizing scientists, most of them not Americans, but Europeans, to, to write letters saying that we need to have a real investigation of what happened, not these made up investigations to go in like they did in February of this year, January, February of this year, where they came in they, and they, they spent like three hours in the lab in Wuhan. We're not even allowed to look through uh, information on their own. So there's been also, I think when Trump left, I think it made it easier for a lot of people who have, you know, just don't like Republicans or don't like Trump to finally say, OK, now let's talk about it. But the reality is that politics should have never played any role in any of this. Four million people now have died. And to see people trying to turn this into a political issue, it's completely ridiculous. You'll have some reporters online right now tweeting things like I heart Fauci, who runs the NIEID uh, part of the NIH, which has funded some of this research. I don't care about any government official at the National Institutes of Health. What is in my mind are the four million people who have died. And that's Mm -hmm. what we should be focusing on. Absolutely. You mentioned the difficulty in trying to get information from Wuhan and from the labs there. We do know that earlier this year, they, they finally allowed the World Health Organization, at least a delegation for the World Health Organization, in there. And the, their report came out rather quickly after that. And they said there was no evidence uh, that it was lab-oriented. Uh, the fact that uh, Mr. Dazak, the aforementioned Mr. Dazak, was a member of that committee, uh, did that influence the, the, the committee's decision or their, their findings? Oh, he was he was behind the scenes trying to orchestrate and influence throughout that entire process. If I remember correctly, before the lab, before the World Health Organization actually even had their formal press conference, Peter Daszak and one of the other researchers held their own personal press conference to trumpet the fact that it could not have possibly come from a lab. And when they came out, they said like it could not have possibly come from a lab. 
there was a bit of an outcry of that on that, specifically with a press uh, a press statement coming out from the White House and Tedros, um, it was a name I can't say, I'm sorry, who runs the World Health Organization, had to come back and say, no, like there's all the options are on the table. So there's been this sort of walk back, walk back, walk back, you know, and, you know, I, I think what was really damaging was seeing how the I, the label of the conspiracy theory was itself a conspiracy. So the the Lancet had to kind of republish this statement. Three people who had initially published the statement in February of last year dropped off. One of those scientists is now saying, has told the Wall Street Journal, he thinks it actually came from the lab. And Peter Daszak's um, original conflict of interest statement, which he said no conflicts of interest, now runs like, I don't know, 400, 500 words with all his financial interests involved. Um, Jeffrey Sachs, who is one of the leaders of the um, uh, Lancet um, Origins uh, 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 Commission, has said that we need to look at everything. We need to look not just at what went on in Wuhan, but there's about $600,000 that came from the United States federal government to that lab in Wuhan that was cycled through Peter Daszak's Equal Health Alliance. So if this was a lab leak, as a former deputy CIA director said last March, told Politico, America bears some of the burden of that because we were funding that lab. What's the role of the World Health Organization? There's always been some concern about their relationship with the Chinese government. Uh, the fact that they sent a delegation in there and they came back and said nothing to see here. Uh, are, are they complicit in this this whole thing, in this conspiracy theory business? I don't know if you want to say they're complicit. I mean, look, they're they're a membership-driven organization. You know, and as soon as you're a membership driven organization, you're basically at the mercy of your members. So it's very hard for any kind of organization to stand up to its own members because, you know, it's about promoting its members interests. So I don't know if you want to call it complicit, but um, they, it's definitely become clear that they don't really have, you know, any power to run an independent organization. Now, um, a British reporter named Ian Burrell has written some stories about some of the interesting ties between Tedros, who runs the World Health Organization, and China. But one of the things I think we're really seeing is the ascendance of China. You know, this is just an example of this, but we're seeing it in sports, we're seeing it in uh, Hollywood. This ability of China, which is an autocracy, to essentially try and you know determine what facts are going to be and what reality is going to be. Um, and this, you know, and, and, and that's fine. Like, you know, if they want us, you know, they, what had happened recently? I think they had some actor turn around and stop saying something negative about China's treatment of Uyghurs. They have a million of them in, in uh, re-education camps, uh, you know, and whatever, their internal stuff. But when 4 million people have died, like, you know, that, that's just, that, that's not acceptable. We got about a minute left here. Where do you see this going? You know that President Biden's already told his intelligence agencies to basically ordering a, a full court press here. We've got to get to the bottom of this. Will they? Can they? I, I, I having run congressional investigations, um, I am very skeptical of agencies who may have engaged in um, dumb or bad behavior suddenly saying, oh, wait, we checked our homework. We found out that we graded it incorrectly. <laughs> That's just not how it works. <laughs> um, next week, we have the first um, hearing um, in Congress on this issue. The Democrats have been very resistant, um, certainly in the House, 
to looking into this issue. But now we're seeing an initial um, push. I think there's going to be more and more pressure brought. Republicans in the House have been sending letters um, since going back early this year demanding documents to become public. We need to stop having officials at the National Institutes of Health running to the New York Times, running to CNN and saying, we've done nothing wrong, everything's okay. We need to start to see those internal documents from these agencies. Paul, That's what uh, we're gonna get to the bottom of it. Thanks so much for the great work that you're doing on this and, and shining the light on this. It's a, it's a very convoluted situation for an awful lot of us and it's great to get some perspective on this. Uh, hopefully we can talk again down the road as uh, we get further details about this, but thanks so much for today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Take care. Paul D. Thacker, of course, freelance journalist for the British Medical Journal and a former investigator for the U.S. Senate. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked about the, well, concerns about what's going on in the pandemic, and uh, there's been some horrific stories about the impact that it's had on children especially. But a recent study of bullying indicates uh, there could actually be a bit of a silver lining behind some of this. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Tracy Viancourt, who is the Canadian Research Chair in Mental Health and Violence Prevention in Schools, a full professor in counseling psychology at the University of Ottawa. Uh, professor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks. How are you doing, Bill? I'm hanging in. I'm hanging in. Uh, you know, still working from home, doing the thing, and we've all got, I guess, your issues for this, but we're always concerned about the kids, Tracy, in situations like this. And, you know, we've heard so many different things about, uh, you know, the, the huge increase in the, the kids' helpline and so many other things. So we know it's having an impact on them. Now, you've been studying bullying uh, for years now, and I know you've done some extensive work on this. What's, what's the latest uh, number? What's the, the latest story on this as you found out? So, first of all, it's really important for people to understand that um, when we studied this, it was in the fall. So, they were in school. Because I keep getting people saying, duh, they weren't in school. So, of course, bullying went down. No, they were in school. Okay? Okay. So that's the first distinction. So, we compared uh, rates. And as you, as you mentioned, I've been studying this in earnest for, you know, 20 years or more. Um, mm-hmm. So, we went back to the same school board that we had been in before. Um, we looked at these rates about a decade ago, and then we did a study where we randomized kids into two conditions. So we assessed um, their level of involvement before the pandemic and during the pandemic. And their level of involvement during the pandemic was about 20% less than it was um, before the pandemic. And that's notable because in the uh, 10 years since I did the last study in the school board, nothing had changed. So a 20% reduction is enormous. Um, and I think it has to do with probably the increased supervision and other measures that we had in place to, um, you know, attend to infectious disease con- control and the spread of the virus. In other words, the restrictions that were in place because of the pandemic, uh, the social distancing, things of this nature and the cohorting uh, actually played into this, I would think, to a large degree. Exactly. And because we used a randomized design, um, you know, a lot of times it could just be sample variants, like just differences in, you know, how kids fell into one sample or another. But with randomization, it takes care of all of those nuances. And it really points to the fact that we had a reduction, a notable reduction. And it's, I think it's driven by our COVID restrictions that you just mentioned. I'm interested in some of these stats because you you look at this from both sides. You just say, you know, the the obvious question is, have you been bullied? And and obviously you address that in this extensively. But you also asked other kids if if they were bullies, if they had done something. And you get some interesting results from that, too. We also see a reduction there and a notable reduction. Um, And it goes hand in hand, right? So uh, the more kids who bully others, the more kids who are victimized. Um, What was interesting, I think, was that 
the reduction in cyberbullying, though, was it was there, but it wasn't as pronounced as other forms. And, um, you know, they spent a lot of time online during the pandemic. Uh, they weren't able to interact with their friends in the playground, um, you know, in school sports and the like, um, or in community sports. And so they went online. So we didn't see a huge reduction on cyberbullying, but we did still, still see a reduction. But the reduction on all other forms of bullying was pretty pronounced. Well, sure. As I mentioned, 24%, and it's down to 13% that have admitted to this, which I guess lends credence to the theory a lot of people have is that, uh, you know, some people are saying, well, the kids do this unwittingly. They don't understand it's really bullying. A lot of them do. They, they, they just look at an opportunity here and they use it. And there were fewer opportunities because of the protocols that were in place. Uh, ergo, they didn't want to get caught, I guess, or feel the ramifications of it. Exactly. So we've long been saying this, and we have data to support this, um, like, across Ontario that kids consistently tell us that they get bullied more often when there's low, low or no supervision. And so um, we were supervising them closely. We needed to make sure their masks were on. They were socially distanced. Uh, were they sanitizing appropriately? And so it just I think it behooves us to, to retain supervision uh, when we go back in the fall and increase it where and if possible. How do you do that? Because you know there's going to be a debate about this in school boards, Tracy, and the, the first answer you're going to get back is we just don't have the money. Staffing levels are, are low as it is right now. You can't, you know, at, at, even in a recess period, you know, where there's 100 kids in the playground, there's usually one teacher supervising, uh, which is just a great opportunity if somebody wants to bully somebody else, and, uh, and, and obviously nobody's going to be able to see them happening like this. So how do school boards address something like this with the limited resources, i.e. staffing, that they have? It, it's a great point. I, I don't know why we can't go back to having parent volunteers. And I know there's a risk with volunteers. I mean, that, that risk exists everywhere. Um, but there's certainly ways that we can vet them and make sure that they're, we have appropriate adults doing this. And there's a lot of parents who have time and want to do this. Um, so that could be one way. I think we need to work more closely with the unions. Um, so, for example, um, for secondary teachers... Um, so teachers in high school, they don't transition between classes. Um, they don't have to supervise the transition between classes. Um, some of them do for sure, but many of them are working on their prep for the next class. And so a lot of bullying takes place in that transition between classes. That's, that's in, you know, embedded within their collective agreement that they have that right to not be in the hallways. So maybe we could be talking to unions and teacher groups and making sure that their needs are met, but also students' needs are met. I, you, I, I read that part of the, the study, and it brought back some ugly memories of my childhood and my, my youth, I guess, uh, uh, the old high school bullying, you know, between classes, you know, when some clown would knock everybody's books out of their hands and going from one class to another, uh, which is bullying. I, I know, you know, some exactly. people are going to say, well, come on, that's just playing games. It's, it's bullying. Try to sit somebody out and, and embarrass them in, in, in a hallway or in a washroom, things of this nature. Uh, very difficult to, to offer that sort of... It, oversight, I guess, in, in school situations like that, which I, I guess leads us into one of the other things that you've been advocating for for so long, and that's education about what is, what isn't, and what are the ramifications of bullying. Exactly. As you know, you and I have had many discussions over the years, and I always appreciate your attention on this topic. Um, bullying causes harm, and it's not something that you could just pretend is uh, teasing or, uh, you know, it's just it doesn't have consequences. It has enormous consequences. Uh, children and teens who are bullied suffer more uh, problems with depression and anxiety. 
um, disordered eating, uh, you name it. Um, some even take their life because of the poor treatment that they receive. And the evidence in that area is very, very strong. And there's a causal pathway. Um, we typically don't say causal. Um, we're cautious as researchers. Everybody is, you know, worried about, um, you know, inflating correlations with causation. But here we have longitudinal studies that directly point to um, bullying causing harm, mental health difficulties in children who are abused by their peers. So we can't ignore it. It's, it's just too much. Now, I will say I feel for teachers. I mean, they are uh, under enormous pressure. And it's interesting because although bullying has gone down for students, I think the bullying of teachers has gone up. And that's something we're looking at next. So we have um, our study set to go. It's just passing ethics now. And we're going to be looking at this. And maybe you and I can discuss the bullying of teachers next time. Well, what are you hearing about that anecdotally? I'll, I'll wait for the study to get into the meat and potatoes of it. But is, is it a growing problem that you're seeing oh, here, Tracy? Yes. Oh, you should just look at what happens online. They are so poorly treated online. It's incredible. Um, I think that what happened is we were privileged to see what they were doing in the classroom and some people were less than kind about what they were seeing and not recognizing that we're not preparing teachers to teach during a pandemic. This was something that was sprung upon them. Um, the other thing is that um, people are frustrated. They think that the school closures are the, you know, a response from the strong teacher unions that they don't want to go back when that's really a misplaced attribution. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're treated very poorly by the public. Um, I get tagged on Twitter um, Twitter or tweets all the time, and I'm just struck and appalled by how uh, vitriolic this is. Yeah, five minutes on, on social media will underscore exactly what the problem is <laughs> exactly. here. And I, and I hear it every day, too. I get those emails and those tweets, uh, a, a lot of it. And, and I'm not going to point fingers of culpability here, but a lot of it has to do uh, with the us-versus-them attitude that some governments put towards teachers and when it comes to things like contracts, and that spills over into everyday life. And, of course, exactly. people buy into that because they're frustrated, too. Uh, it's almost as if like, it's human nature, I suppose, in some of us, that w we, we have to have somebody to blame when, when things are going bad. And uh, the teachers are an easy mark for a lot of that stuff because of uh, the, the fact that they're there and, and you know they're the ones that are presenting uh, whether it's the educational aspect or the social aspect of it uh, and, and you become the focus of, of their tension or their anger I guess if that's what's you know driving them at that point. Exactly and my concern is that the working conditions of teachers are the learning conditions of students and so we need to be attending to their needs as well. Anyhow I just think and you know it'll be interesting to see what becomes of this but my working hypothesis is that teachers have had it bad and students have had it better. I was thinking back uh, when I knew you were going to come on the program today, one of the first few times you and I had this discussion, this is years and years ago, and part of the advice you mentioned at that time was uh, to have tried, especially with cyberbullying, which was just starting to, to become rampant at that time, uh, I think the advice was uh, along the lines of uh, make sure that the family computer is in a living room or something where everybody can keep an eye on what somebody else is doing. And that seemed like good advice at the time because if you had a computer in the house and not everybody did, that's pretty good. So, you know, the parents could look over the shoulder and say, what, who are you? talking to what are you saying uh, the computer's in their hand now i mean everybody's got a phone even you know children in elementary school have phone it's it's very very difficult to control this what, what's your advice to parents and others that that want to try to get a handle on this or try to educate their children about this it's really interesting so i've done a few uh 
extensive literature reviews for a uh, policy report we're putting out. And um, kids who have done more poorly during the pandemic in terms of their mental health are the ones that have been online more. So they have been engaging in, um, you know, using their their, their devices more, um, talking to strangers online and perhaps their peers and the like. So I would say that we should be thinking, and this is across all age groups, it's not just children, it's also teens. So I think we should really be having this discussion. I, I like what you're saying. We should be having a discussion about, you know, what's appropriate use, how much is enough, um, having them turn off their devices when they go to bed. Um, some kids um, get dinged at 3 o'clock in the morning and they look at their screen and then re-engage and they're not getting enough sleep and, and the like. It's a bit more complicated than the time we have, but certainly it's something that needs to be examined. You've always talked about education in, in a broader sense, about you know, making sure that people understand or at least to a certain extent can empathize with with another individual in their circumstance. There's been a lot of that, and, and I think some very positive steps over the last little while. Uh, you know, education about LGBTQ rights, things of this nature, that, that heretofore were probably part of the cause of some of the bullying because people didn't quite understand or just didn't want to understand that. Have those sorts of programs and those sorts of, uh, of, 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 I guess, things that you can hang on to, uh, safe spaces in some schools, or maybe another one that comes to mind, are they helpful here? Are they, are they contributing to, to the education aspect and, and creating some awareness of, of what you're doing and the impact of, of the, what you're doing? It's, you know, it's a really important point because what we, there's a bit of a lag behind. Um, so first you change cognitions, and then once you change cognition, behavior changes. So you tend to not get behavior and cognition um, working in tandem. So I think we need to be examining this a little bit longer to see the changes that should be coming down the line. At present, there's a little bit of a change, but not enough of a change. So this is what's striking about the findings from our study is that we've never seen a 20% reduction in this. Like, again, you and I have been talking about this for well over 10 years, right? Oh, yeah. And I've never, ever seen a reduction like this. Um, and I'm not suggesting that supervision is the panacea. Uh, you know, it's not going to fix bullying per se, but certainly one, I would put my money in that area if I could. Um, but... Um, I want to see what happens in about five years. And it is frustrating, though, because waiting five years when you're currently being bullied because of your sexual orientation um, doesn't do you any good today. Um, but unfortunately, that's just how humans work, right? We tend to change our ideas, and then once our ideas are changed, um, we start acting better. Well, I'd like to think we're further down the road, uh, and, but the controversy from last month, uh, you know, raising pride flags in schools uh, right across the province uh, kind of, I guess, was a wake-up call for a lot of us. There's still a lot of work to be done there, so I think your point's well taken. Yeah. And I, 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 I just, go ahead, Tracy, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Bill, I interrupted you. I was just going to say, but that's because I think your ideas are more progressive and my ideas are more progressive, and we project that on to others and think that they're like us, and yet, and then we're, like, surprised when somebody behaves uh, inappropriately. Um, so I think that reflects your kindness. And But um, there's a lot of unkind people out there. They certainly are. I appreciate the comment. You, you're so talking about, you know, looking to five years down the road. I want you to look five months down the road. Let's assume the kids are going to go back in the classroom come September. And, and I want to reiterate, by the way, people just joining the conversation, this drastic reduction was when the kids were still in school. It wasn't just because they were staying home at that point. That's, uh, that's when this whole survey took place. But they're going to be back on a full-time basis. I don't want to say as usual because who knows what it's going to look like. Are you concerned that you're going to see a spike when that happens? 
Um, yes, I am. I think if we don't make any changes and they go back to the status quo, then we're going to see the status quo on our bullying rates and they'll jump up. How depressing is that? Exactly. Um, in a lot of ways, the pandemic forced innovation, and we need to be thinking about the, the parts of education that we should be retaining. Education is really entrenched, and it's really traditional, and it's hard to get, um, you know, it's hard to get changes at a system level done. And so I'm really hoping that we are going to look um, at what happened during this unprecedented time and then use the evidence to inform changes that should have taken place a long time ago. Well, that's why this is encouraging. And I think you mentioned in the report that you kind of drew the analogy that this is like a Band-Aid. The pandemic, uh, you know, gave us maybe maybe even a false sense of security with a a big drop like this. But once they get back to what what they consider to be normal and they're back in the classroom all the time, it may spike again. But you're hopeful that with this experience that uh, that, that the, the wounds are, are starting to heal. And I know that's a long process, and you warned us about that years ago when you started doing these studies when you were still at McMaster, that it's going to take a long, long time, generational as opposed to weekly or monthly. And I guess we have to you, – you don't want to say be patient because you want to see that change happen t- tomorrow, but we have to be realistic, I guess, too. Exactly. Well said. I mean, obviously, this is what you do for a living, right? You speak for a living because I couldn't have said it better. We need to be patient, but it's hard to be patient. And it's a bit cruel to tell somebody who's currently experiencing this that they need to be patient. Um, So we need something in place for those individuals immediately because they certainly um, should be spared from oppression and humiliation. Um, But we also need to think about this carefully and how we're going to reduce these rates. So we've been looking at these rates for the last 20 years and they haven't changed. They've barely changed. We've put a lot of programs in place um, and we're not getting the change, the reductions that we would hope for. A 20% reduction, that gives me hope. And uh, so if we can retain it by retaining some of these measures, uh, I think we're going to be in a really good place. Just to finish on a high note, uh, because I think it's worth noting, as a matter of fact, it's important that we note that while these numbers may be static, and that's awfully frustrating, especially for people that are on the receiving end that, that are being bullied, uh, there are a lot more resources and sports services available now than there were five, ten years ago uh, that they can use and rely on, and, and they need to be aware of that. Exactly. So there are tons of uh, resources. Um, you know, in Ontario, one of the few places in Canada, bullying is in the Education Act. We have a clear progression of how to deal with it. Um, so, you know, we know uh, we have a progressive discipline approach to this. Uh, we have a standard definition. So all teachers in our province know what we mean when we say uh, bullying. Uh, we recognize that it causes harm. So we've made progress. I'm not saying we haven't made progress but I would love to see our rates go down and stay down. Well, uh, with the next report coming up, hopefully we'll see a positive sign in that as well. Uh, Tracy, it's such important work that you do, and thank you so much for that and for spending some time with us today. It's always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, Bill, and thanks for championing this cause, and I hope you continue to do so. Absolutely. You can bet on that. Thanks again, Tracy. Take care. Tracy Viancourt from uh, the University of Ottawa, and uh, great, great work that she's doing with mental health for kids especially. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about the four-day work week. Now, this is not a brand new idea, uh, but it's one that seems to be gaining steam, and we're changing the way that we're working, and we're changing where we're working because of the pandemic, and this is something that 
Wahoo's idea may have come. Global's Anne Gaviola has some details. Zora is a rural township just east of London, Ontario. Its 14 municipal staffers are part of one of the country's largest trials of the four-day work week. They work longer hours from either Monday to Thursday or Tuesday to Friday, and it works out to the same number of hours per week and the same pay. For those that have small children, it's one less day of daycare. I found within even the first couple of weeks that my work-life balance was improved. The second phase of the eight-month trial kicked off this week and runs until October. Staff and researchers at West Western University will evaluate its success and make recommendations for the future. The township hopes to use it as a recruitment tool, a compressed schedule to compete with other positions that offer more money. Interesting study. Uh, I know our London listeners on uh, 980 CPL know all about Zora Township. For the, those who don't, uh, it's just past, I, I guess technically, sort of between London and Stratford, out in that area, and it's a township uh, that was done during the amalgamation days back in the mid-70s in Ontario. Anyway, uh, interesting and innovative work that's going on. So is it an idea that your workplace might want to entertain? Is it something that can be effective, and, and just how effective is it? To talk about the whole concept, we're pleased to welcome to the program Vic Singh, who is an assistant professor of global management studies with the Ted Rogers School of Management at uh, Ryerson University. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. As, as we mentioned, not a new idea. It's been had tried in other parts, and we're going to talk about some of those things that are happening internationally as well. But what, what about this idea? What about the concept? Is this the right time as we're coming out of the pandemic and, and we've been working out of home or doing staggered hours, all, all sorts of innovations we've tried? Is this as good a time as any to say maybe we should give a shot to this too? I think it's the best time right now to be looking at some some of these innovations in, in employment practices, especially coming out of the uh, pandemic and you know being getting used to working from home and having a little bit more flexibility in terms of work life balance. Uh, that's commute, I guess. I think that's something employees are thinking right now is when they're trying to get back to work is that you know are they going to face the, the back to normal or would there be some form of uh, innovation or flexibility being provided by the employer. So I think this is a, this is a great time to be experimenting uh, with these concepts. Yeah, because we got thrown into the experiment uh, unwittingly, didn't we, about 18 months ago, and we may as well, you know, in other words, probably open-minded about it now, to, whereas maybe two years ago, maybe not so much. But but as, as uh, Anne Gaviola mentioned in her report, though, Professor, this is not a new concept, and it is being employed in, in many other areas. I was talking with the uh, the chief of police in Hamilton uh, just earlier today about this, and, and of course, they've been doing that for quite some time. Uh, hospitals, other places like this can do this, and, and they've already staggered this with four-day work week, so it, it there's an application that is available, isn't there? Yeah, it's not a new concept. I mean, I recall when I worked in the federal government, we had a program where we could actually work extra hours per day and then we could bank it and, and get a day off. So it's so certainly not a new idea. Uh, the one thing we need to keep in mind is this is not a reduction in work. This mm-hmm. is basically compressing the hours instead of working five days, now you're working four days. So. Uh, it's not reducing the work hours. It's just basically giving you, you that flexibility to have that extra day off. During yeah, the- and as, as to your point, uh, what the chief of police told me is they they work four-day work weeks. It's 12-hour shifts, though, as nurses do and some other people in, in some of these other fields. And what they've done in Zora is uh, divided the work uh, team in half, I guess, and some of them work well, what is it, Monday to, to Thursday, and the others work Tuesday to Friday. So there's always going to be somebody there. Right. So it is workable, but it's a little bit longer, but it's the same amount of hours. Um, my understanding, Professor, in most of the places where this is tried, uh, the pay stays the same because you're working the same amount of hours, doing as much work as ever. It's just right. giving you that long weekend. Talk to us about the psychological benefit to that for the workers and for the, uh, the employer. 
I think, uh, I mean, uh, just to, uh, you know, kind of circle back to what you were saying is that I've yet to meet someone who actually enjoys commuting to work, uh, you know, especially <laughs> when we look at uh, GTA and, you know, the long yeah. hours and I've done it. And, you know, it, it, it's not really great uh, for your mental stability and also for your work-life balance where, you know, where you're spending a lot of hours trying to dodge your traffic. So, so I think having that extra one day and not having to do that, I think that provides a lot of, I would say, you know, um, mental benefits to, to the workers, and, and hopefully that also leads to an increase in productivity. So if I know that I'm going to get, you know, Friday or Monday off, then, you know, I, I'll be much happier <laughs> in the other days working, knowing that there is one day less uh, to commute and also an extra day for, for myself and for my family. Well, I, I can say from personal experience, I love long weekends. Uh, I think most people do because it, it does psychologically. I, I think you know you feel as if, hey, I'm I'm getting a, a much big, bigger benefit now than I ordinarily do. You can get into a, I guess, a routine Monday to Friday, the same thing, and it's not drudgery necessarily, but you know, it's it's what was that joke somebody said? You know, the, the first five days after the weekend are the hardest to deal with. Well, if you've got that extra day off, that that really get, you kind of hit the ground running when you finally get back to work, then, don't you? Absolutely, it does, and I think it, it you know, it, it goes a lot in terms of employment. Uh, employment, uh, you know, the benefit we seek from from employment, and you know, they're not necessarily monetary, but they're also other benefits. And I think this kind of fits in really well, uh, you know, uh, especially when employers are lo- looking into retaining their employees, uh, especially in certain fields where we are facing an employee, you know, the employee uh, crunch and lack of labor. Well, one of the discussions that we've had over the last 18 months, Professor, is is about the employee's mental health. And, and it's certainly been tested uh, rigorously because of working from home, like you say, and a number of other things that we've been forced into doing. Uh, anything you can do to enhance mental health, I would think, would increase productivity and, and make a happier workplace for everybody. And absolutely. you're talking about you know, probably less illness, less days off, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that basically translates into a lot of savings, uh, not just for the employees, but also for the employers and for the general society. I mean, when we, yeah, I, mean I don't think we have actually, you know, costed out the mental health cost uh, to our nation. So I think when we take that into account, I mean, there's benefits, uh, general welfare benefits for everyone. Now, Azora Township is, is not a huge metropolis. That's a small workforce. Uh, so people might think, well, that's easily done. And with, with that, you can just split it in half as they've done in Zora. You know, you guys work this side, you guys work this shift. But there was a, a study, and I guess an extensive study done in Iceland about this too, was there not? Yeah, I think, I think the Iceland study was, was a little bit different than what we've done. What they did there was they ended up actually reducing the hours per week. Mm. And, and the way they did it was by, you know, getting rid of some of the you know, uh, the meetings or, you know, some of the redundancies in workplace and finding ways to cut down um, the number of t- hours employees spent. And th- that's how they actually ended up reducing the work hours. So a little bit different than what we did here. But, uh, you know, what the what the study actually shows has been, you know, very successful and, uh, you know, um, led to a lot of benefits for the employers and employees and led to actually increase in productivity. And I think that is that is the metric a lot of the employers are looking for is the productivity. I mean, if that actually increases the productivity, then why not? And that's one of the 
points that always comes up when we talk about how is this going to look coming out of the pandemic for so many of us who have been working from home working remotely for the last little while and the concern has always been in the past well you know if i let this guy do this uh, how do i know that it's going to just watch euro cup in, instead of being at work when they're supposed to be doing their job you can't control that but productivity what i'm hearing from an awful lot of employers uh, is if not maintained itself has at least gone up in some areas with people working at home so i think it goes back to your point about if you've got a, a consent and a happy worker, they're going to be more productive automatically. And you're right. I saw some of the numbers about the Icelandic study, and they they have very positive numbers about work productivity. That, that tells you it's a, an advantage for the employee and the employer too. Absolutely, it is. Now, now I, I would caution that the studies which have been done have been done in public sector. Yeah, they haven't been done in, in, in private sector. So I think this is where. We would like to see, you know, how how that transfers into the private sector, and, and especially in in uh, front facing or frontline work condition uh, sectors. I think those will be the most challenging, uh, where we have to implement this for the week. Do you get the sense, the professor, that there's a willingness in some circles and some endeavors to give this a shot? I think I think uh, you know uh, there is, and and I and I believe that the, that also stems from. You know, the employer is realizing that, you know, as, as you just mentioned, that, you know, the employees are happy. They, they work better and it leads to better, you know, financial outcomes for themselves. So, so I think there is willingness. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how it would translate in across the sectors, but certainly it's the right move. I just got an email from uh, Leslie. Yeah, Leslie, who's what, listening to our conversation here, says uh, one less day of daycare payments. That's that's great. I'm, I'm for that. that. That's I guess an added benefit that I wasn't even thinking about. I mean, if if you're going to be home that extra day, uh, as a lot of us have been over the last little while, that's very advantageous, and it could actually be a cost reduction if you're paying somebody to look after the kids. Yeah, absolutely. Daycare costs. I mean, looking at fuel cost reduction. We're looking at you know just the uh, you know the, the traffic congestion. You know. And you know reduction in accidents, for example, we haven't quantified that aspect. So I think there's a lot of benefits across the board, and certainly, yeah, daycare it would be would be fantastic. How attractive is this going to be, Professor? I mean, as soon as you say that phrase, a lot of people say, "Hey, yeah, I could, I could love a day off. You know, let's have long weekends. That's fab." And that's a certain. Idea. But if, for instance, Zora Township, where they're doing this right now. Uh, it's a small township. It's it's not as like the GTA or anything like that. So, uh, you know, when when they're recruiting, uh, they probably haven't got the same pay scale, nor do they have the uh, the the opportunity to pay as high as some of these other municipalities. But can you counterbalance that by saying, look, at you know, you got a four day work week here. You got a lot more time to yourself. You may not make as much money, but you don't need as much money. Uh, you're in a smaller place, and look at the advantages of of where you're working and how much you're working. Is is that a selling point that that uh, well, not just Zora, but other communities and maybe even other businesses could use to try to, to recruit? It is a selling point, absolutely, especially when, you, when, you, when you're trying to hire people in high-skill, um, you know, jobs where there, there aren't enough people to hire. Certainly, that, that becomes a recruiting uh, tool. Now, now, one of the challenges I should, I should point out is that, you, you know, in certain professions, it's, it's easier to work longer hours, but mm-hmm. in certain professions, it's not. It can lead to mental fatigue. Like, you know, if you're a computer programmer, for example, and you have to put in extra two hours per day. Now, that could be a challenge. So I think certainly it would, would depend on the type of job. It will also depend on the willingness of the employee. Mm-hmm. Not everybody wants to work extra couple hours. So so I think I think the employers would probably use this as one of the various employee benefit tools. 
and um, and you know it would be I, I wouldn't think it would turn into a mandatory thing across the board, but but certainly it would be one of the tools that a lot of the employers will be looking into, especially when it comes to hiring and retaining high skilled labor. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't look to see that this is going to be a universally accepted thing. You're absolutely right. There are some professions and some companies that it's just not going to be workable. But from what I've seen with the Zora uh, experiment, I guess we can call it in Zora Township, and, and even with the study I, that I saw, I just read the overview of what happened in Iceland over that long period of time, uh, it's seamless. In other words, the customer, uh, the, the, the people that they're serving, uh, don't seem to notice one way or another. I mean, there's always going to be that level of service there. It's just going to be different people on different days. That's all. Absolutely, I think I think if you can stagger uh, within your employees, like you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, converting this into a shift time type of a work, I absolutely it, it would not really lead to a lot of disruption. In fact, I think it would be even better for the customers because they would actually you now deal with happier uh, employees. So you know, they would get much better customer service. Where is this going? We've not the first time we've seen studies like this, and you talked about you know in the, in the public sector, police services, uh, hospital settings, things like that. It's I'm not going to say it's easier, but I mean simply because you're dealing with such large numbers, it's it seems to be easier to facilitate this with all the staff members, and it's pretty attractive to get you know 12 hour shift in those is workable. Uh, maybe not so much in, the, in in an education environment or in a broadcasting environment. Uh, how do you put in a 12 hour day in situations like this? So I can see where it's not working, but where and what enterprises would look at this and say, you know what, I think this is worth a shot. Do you see this moving in, and, and what kind of companies would want to embrace something like this? I think uh, the answer to that is that, you know, companies are looking into hiring and retaining high-skilled labor where, you know, a lot of the work is, is project-based. Um, I think those are the firms that would be actually looking into, um, you know, such kind of conversion, uh, in, in, you know, in, into looking into converting into a four-day work week. Um, and it's really hard to say, you know, because, you know, it's easier to, to do this in a small township. You know, you know, how easy would it be to convert this, you know, for the city of Toronto or for Peel or for Halton or whatnot, mm-hmm. right? So some of these bigger organizations and, and, and city entities. So I think it, it, it is an experiment, and I think but it's a step in the right direction. Um, but, but certainly those, those uh, you know, work settings where, where where you know people are working already working from home and they have the capacity to work in a virtual environment, uh, why not uh, have them come one one less day? You know, we uh, I think a lot of the employers will be looking into this. Well, I think it's a discussion that's going to be had as people start going back to work, and you know, when the pandemic is well not behind us necessarily, but at least at the point where the risks are minimal. Uh, this is a discussion I think a lot of companies are going to have, as, as you say, now that. You know, we have done the unusual. Let's consider other options instead of simply going back to what was the status quo. Fascinating subject. I, I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about it today, Professor. Thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Professor Vid Singh from uh, the Ted Rogers School of Management, rather, at Ryerson University. Four-day work week. Talk about it. Think about it. See who's going to jump out and try it first. It's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen there. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.